Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Welcome again to another episode of the Out of the Question podcast. And today, my co-host, Charles Roberts, and I are going to get behind the question, are you a closet Pharisee? So, Charles, why do we think that there may be some closet Pharisees out there? Well, of course, we know there were Uh, real Pharisees in the days of Jesus and even before and, of course, after he ascended to heaven. And um, these people were his bitterest enemies. They were constantly trying to thwart the message. And even after he left this earthly plane, they ferociously attacked his followers and those who sought to proclaim the message. And what made him take this approach? Why was this such a a vicious thing that they wanted to pursue had a lot to do with their profound misunderstanding, if not twisting, of God's law. And this is a very important topic. It should be for every Christian. So the issue is, and you'll give us a reference here in just a moment, are there people who take God's laws and do they maybe add more to them? Do they deduce things from them that may make sense on one level, but they go beyond what God is actually requiring of us, especially as it relates to penalties and sanctions for violation of his laws. So people are have a tendency to always want to move beyond what God is telling us to do and how to handle it. And God has given us a very simple word in so many ways. Um, the phrase that comes to my mind is that uh, and if there are any Roman Catholics that listen to us, you'll pardon me, but some people want to be more Catholic than the Pope. So. Right, right. Okay, so let's just clarify something. The Pharisees were a group. They had a name, but the term Pharisee has taken on a, a connotation that means says one thing and does another. So when, when Jesus called the Pharisees vipers and hypocrites, that's what he was pinpointing. And the accusation had to do with trying to bend the law, but missing the spirit of the law. So they might've had the letter, but they didn't have the spirit. And so I imagine when people read the title, they'll say, well, huh? Of course not. Of course I'm not a Pharisee. But what prompted this question are two position papers that appear in Dr. Rush Dooney's three-volume compilation of all his position papers. And these were two that are um, right back-to-back in the book, although they were actually written months apart back in 1989. The first one was entitled Inferences and Commandments, and the second one entitled Inferences and the Law. And in it, he's making the point that God's law is clearly stated. And yes, we can infer things from that law, but what are the dangers when we make our inferences something that not only we're going to say applies to us, but we're then going to say needs to apply to other people? So Charles, if you would give an example 
of a commandment and then a inference, which we would say this inference is an appropriate inference, but it doesn't carry the same weight as law. Dr. Rushdoony references in the book, and this is this is uh, the classic one that Jesus himself used, was the um, the importance of tithing and, and giving of our substance to God according to his law. But in his day, the Pharisees had sort of um, gone beyond that with inferences and implications that said, well, you know, um, you're also supposed to help your parents, but giving to God is far more important. And, you know, we can put in brackets, which means giving to us uh, and giving to our work in the temple, etc. So really, by inference, I'm substituting that word, you can forget about giving to your parents or maybe cut back a little bit and give more to God. You know, that's an example of that comes straight from Scripture about how uh, a law of God concerning the tithe was corrupted and added to by these men for, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, they may have had righteous ideas. I mean, who, who doesn't want to give to God? But they're, um, they're going beyond what God's law stated to make it something more complicated and, frankly, unfair. And in this case, I think it would be not wrong to surmise some benefit to them. But I think today we don't have examples quite like that what I think about is, for example, how people honor and observe the Sabbath. Depending on where somebody came from, either how they were raised or that they came to faith as an adult, maybe there were certain things that they used to do on Sundays that they think now was a violation of the Sabbath. And so they don't do that anymore. But if they hear someone else does that same thing, then in actual fact, they're Sabbath breakers, and now they've taken their particular application and have decided this needs to be everybody's application. And that's why the title, Are You a Closet Pharisee? Are you judging other people, not based on God's law, but based on your inferences from God's law? Dr. Rushdoony, um, in the one of the articles that you referenced on inferences and commandments, he, he makes a very important point. He says, the trouble with inferences is that when repeated over and over again, they become part of the meaning of the law, and people read them into the text. And that's exactly what we're talking about, and that's precisely what the Pharisees did and their modern-day counterparts. Uh, God's law is perfect as he's given it. It sustains the soul, but the thing is, uh, it has a tendency to be corrupted like this, and e even with the best of intentions. Okay, you shouldn't do certain things on the Sabbath, but God, uh, in another place, he talks about the fact that God and how God enforces his law is not always what he requires of us. And so, uh, you, you run into very absurd things in some cases. I don't remember if we had talked about this in previous broadcasts, but I know here in the South where I grew up, uh, we had blue laws. Um, where there, was, there was nothing open on Sundays um, except maybe uh, an emergency place or a, a drugstore. But then it got to the point where you could go and buy, say, for example, a box of pancake mix, but you couldn't buy a spatula. Uh, these, all these things were based on what people thought would be appropriate or inappropriate on the Lord's Day. And these things become oppressive and it's not so much that people don't like them one way or the other, they don't appeal to them, that they are a violation of what God had very simply laid out. And this is something that these two articles very clearly bring out, is that uh, 
there is a simplicity to what God has revealed. I mean, there are only 600 laws uh, or, or more or less unfolded in uh, the Pentateuch. Uh, but you look at, say, just the legal code of any state in the Union, <laughs> I mean, it fills three or four rooms. And I was thinking about this as we prepared, as we were preparing for this uh, podcast. Um, one of the denominations that I used to be uh, serving in, their, I'll just say their, their book of government, I mean, it was almost as thick as Los Angeles County phone book. <laughs> but the one I'm in now, which is far more decentralized, I mean, it's, it's as thin as, you know, just a, a, like maybe 50, 75, 100 pages at the most. I remember in an easy chair broadcast, uh, I think it was one of those, Dr. Rustuni made the point to Otto Scott or whoever he's talking to that it used to be when you bought a car, they were very simple. And just about anybody could repair a car engine without having to have a degree in engineering. But as time progressed, people added more and more and more things, and it's just impossible for anyone to do anything without taking it to a shop. So. Yeah. So I think this whole idea of God's law is very complex, and some people will shudder when you tell them there are 600, 613 laws. They're saying, oh, my gosh, that's just so much. And I, I'd say, well, excuse me, you carry that book around with you when you go to church. So those laws are contained in that book. And as you pointed out, in any state, you could not carry the, the laws that just get passed in a year, let alone, you know, that are currently on the books. So it's not so much that you're wrong in an inference. Something that someone does could, in fact, be a violation of the Sabbath. Or you might run into someone who isn't tithing. But the real question is, does God give men the opportunity or the responsibility to punish or sanction a violation of a particular law? Well, clearly, he does with murder. He says, on the testimony of two witnesses, if it's proven that the person actually committed the murder, then the sanction is that person loses his life. But today, we have laws that are called you know, hate crimes, and we have inherent biases. God may not like any of those things, but does he give man the, the responsibility and the duty to go ahead and punish it? In most cases, aside from a very limited group, God will deal with people in their disobedience, and he doesn't leave that to man. One of the other examples that uh, he points out, and I forgot which of the two articles it was, that uh, people often like to refer to in attacking God's law um, is the case of the rebellious son. Uh, the inference that people want to draw from that is that, oh, you, you, you mean you want to stone to death a, a five-year-old? Uh, that's purely an inference, but besides that, uh, the text doesn't indicate that. It, it indicates a child old enough to be a criminal, and uh, the idea of requiring the parents to be a part of it indicates that they will side with God's justice um, and, and not sentiment. But it, it, you know, it goes on to the, the larger issue of what is it that we are called by God to do in terms of these things? And the remarkable thing is, is that in the case of many of these laws, perhaps even a majority of them, uh, there's no direct reference to, from God that, okay, this, if this person does this, then you do this particular thing to them. Uh, and the tithing thing is an, is an example of that. Now, as you indicated, there is some very direct things that are to be done, uh, 
Um, but in, as in the case, we'll take another example, as in the case of uh, sodomy and homosexuality, or any of the sexual crimes that are referenced in God's law, uh, none of these things can be prosecuted without the testimony of two witnesses. And it wasn't like God had forgotten, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, if people are doing something in private that nobody can see, uh, how am I going to get this done? No. I mean, they, he built that into the system because the, the foundation is that we're to govern ourselves first and foremost, uh, according to his law. And the other thing is, is that the purpose of the law is to not make people righteous. So the idea that people are violating it, it's not that they are to be prosecuted and punished uh, because somehow they'll benefit thereby and it'll make them more holy. It's the recognition that um, we, we are counted righteous in Christ alone, but this is the standard by which we are to live. And if we go beyond what God says, then we're trending in an area that makes his word oppressive. And again, going back to the time of Jesus, this is what he was dealing with. Now, one of the most remarkable things that I think is overlooked in the Gospels or the places where Jesus has these interactions with his apostles, sometimes apparently with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the others standing fairly close by, in which he made this contrast between, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and this is a, a prime place where he's interacting with the case of people believing inferences rather than God's law. And one of the things that people don't get, especially when you're having the theonomy versus antinomianism debate, they think that the Pharisees were upholding the law and Jesus was saying, no, 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 the law is gone. You're no longer under law, you're under grace. When in actual fact, what you just said, he was saying, you have made your inferences law to the point that you at least know that this is an inference that you're making, but the people you teach don't know that, so they think it's the law. So you could have all sorts of things that you could do on the Sabbath as opposed to that you couldn't do, kind of like your pancake mix spatula example, which purely is, okay, if, if that's how you're going to organize your life personally and you feel that this has you honor God's law, fine, but as soon as you start enforcing it on other people, then you've put yourself in the place of the lawgiver, which is Jesus Christ. In thinking about this, I um, recalled a conversation I had with a man who is uh, still a good friend of mine. He, he teaches martial arts. He's a karate instructor in Massachusetts. And um, I think you and I have talked about this uh, off cast that uh, both of us have had an interest in this at different times. And our audience probably is familiar enough with uh, karate and other martial arts to know that there are forms, prearranged forms, sometimes called kata, that you learn a specific set of movements that may be 20 or 50 or 100 different movements that are follow a certain pattern. And these are fairly standard across the different styles. Well, this man was telling me that, this goes back many years ago, that um, there was one of these particular forms that a friend of his was demonstrating to him that contained a move he had never seen before. And he asked him, he said, this particular movement you made, I've seen this form done many, many times across different styles, but I've never seen that. And it turned out that this particular movement was put into that form as a result of this man and his school having learned the form from 
a 16 millimeter film. That was the way these things were recorded back in the day. And what was not known to the man is that when the person demonstrating it on the film got to a certain place in the room, he had to shuffle and move out, move out of the way of a column that was coming down the center of a room. <laughs> so, so this movement had found its way into this form and was, was repeated over and over again when it actually has had nothing to do with the way the form was originally put together and for that purpose. So people were doing this and they had no idea why. And right. we find similar things like this in the area of faith and life, especially in the churches. And that's a great point because if you don't go back to the scripture, which we have, God has seen fit from Genesis to Revelation to let us know what we need to know. Now, granted, we are going to apply it. We don't have donkeys that we're, trans that we're going around with. We go around in automobiles or trucks or motorcycles. And so we can make those associations. But by and large, there is not going to be new revelation. And so that's the beauty of teaching people how to learn the word of God, teaching them to read, giving them opportunities to hear it, maybe even before they can read, so that they can always judge a command or rule based on what does the word of God say. And I think this is an important point for parents because it's very easy and very expedient when you're dealing with children, raising children, to make your inferences commandments. Now, it's perfectly okay to not like watching or hearing someone chew gum. But to say that chewing gum is a sin and it's a violation of God's law is not an appropriate rendition of scripture. You can say, mommy doesn't like the sound of you chomping your gum. And so when I'm around, you're not going to do it. And you're going to do it because I'm requesting it in the same way that if there's something that I did that was particularly irksome to you and it's not a vital part of my life, I can adjust accordingly. But to making a blanket statement that chewing gum is therefore sin and no one should do it is imposing on your children who really don't have the ability to see the difference if you don't tell them that if they go ahead and take a stick of gum when mommy's not around, they're now sinning. And to move this into yet another area, another realm, uh, and that of the church, probably one of the more familiar cases of this, in my opinion, at least, is the issue of using grape juice in communion rather than wine. Uh, this becomes an inference that is, in, in my opinion, to uh, beyond all reason. There's simply no way to get around the fact that in the case of the wedding feast at Cana, G Jesus turned water into wine. He didn't turn it into unfermented grape juice, whatever that was supposed to be. And this becomes an inference on the part of some people because they have an idea that they uh, that alcohol is in and of itself bad. Drunkenness is bad. Drunkenness is an evil that's condemned in scripture. Uh, but obviously, drinking alcohol in and of itself is not something prohibited by God's law. Drunkenness clearly is. So we have this uh, spectacle of um, people counting it as a, a nasty evil that anyone would have real wine in a communion service or it, pre it presents some serious problem. Well, the people in Jesus' day, uh, almost all, and, and still in places in, in the world today, uh, wine is drink, drunk almost as much as water. And obviously, there's more 
I'm guessing, I don't know that I have the statistics to back this up right now, but I'm thinking alcoholism is probably as much a more problem in societies that prohibit it, uh, or at least try to, than in those who, uh, who don't. And this is not to say individual conscience doesn't play a role. For example, when Paul is talking to believers about the weaker brother and saying, look, really, you don't have to worry about eating something that was sacrificed to idols, but if he finds it a stumbling block, then take away your preference, which is fine, but you don't want him to stumble. So you don't ever want to tell somebody who thinks that drinking alcohol at communion is something that is sinful, especially if the person came from an alcoholic background. You pray that God will show that person what God wants that person to know, but you don't take it even if your your inference is correct, which I believe what you just said about scripture is correct, you don't make that a major point if it's going to cause someone else to stumble. So it can go either way. You can make it so that your inference is, oh, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. Just go ahead and do it. But if the person has a conscience objection until such time as God informs their conscience differently or they learn differently, we don't want to trample on another brother in an area where we don't have jurisdiction to discipline. Exactly. And I, I think something that Dr. Rastuni said in the second of the, um, the two articles, inferences, or is it the first, inferences and the law, um, he says, but God's law has limits. Man seeks a total law, whereas God does not, even though he is the absolute sovereign and creator. God does not present his law as the salvation of man and society, but as the way of holiness, this is a very different thing. And it may be astounding to some people that we of all people associated with the Chalcedon Foundation are talking about the, the law is, is more open and free. And, you know, God's law is something that uh, is not cumbersome because, you know, they're the character caricature that we want to yoke people up and all that sort of thing. But um, as he points out here, God's law does have limits. And it's not meant to be something that is a vehicle for salvation. It is men who corrupt it and try to make it something like that. It's very plain. God's law is very simple. And it is only there are only humanistic inferences that try to sup, uh, supplant that and make it such that it becomes a, a serious, serious burden to people. And I think the way a lot of people become pharisaical is that they try to tweak God's law to justify something that they're doing or something that, um, for example, you'll hear people say, well, how is it appropriate to tell two men who love each other that they shouldn't be able to express that love physically and actually be married? Well, instead of getting into the emotional and how would you feel if you go back to the scripture and you say, thus saith the Lord. So these are issues we're not going to debate. The only way you debate these issues is if you somehow don't take the clear meaning of the scripture. If God calls something an abomination, and you don't know what an abomination is, you should look up the word and look at all those times in scripture that certain things are called abominations. Well, you should tread gently to decide that what God calls an abomination isn't. 
So as has been pointed out in previous podcasts, yes, there are things like homosexuality is wrong. Does that mean it was never carried out in secret? No, there wouldn't be a law against it if man didn't have a tendency towards it in his sin, but it was never to be accepted as a societal norm. So if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, it's been said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say, if you even do it in your heart, that's where he's talking about the fact that God will hold you accountable, even though no one here on this earth can hold you accountable for what sin you're committing in your heart. So Jesus wasn't sanctioning adultery. He wasn't sanctioning homosexuality. He was recognizing that people suffer from this temptation and sin in this way, and he was letting them know that a greater judgment other than what man could ever do to him was coming if they didn't conform to being in agreement with God. So when we talk about the law being much less restrictive than most people think, we have to acknowledge the fact that God gave man the freedom to sin, because if he didn't, none of us could. Yeah, we would be nothing but uh, robots or automatons, and that's a just the opposite of what God's Word teaches us. Now, some people want to corrupt the the message of Scripture and uh, turn us who are Calvinists into fatalists, as uh, if you know we we don't have any ability on our own to make decisions. But exactly as you just said, um, that's that's part of the way God created things, and He could have done it differently, but He didn't. And Dr. Rushdoony makes the point that uh, it, it's to Christ that we must turn for atonement and regeneration and salvation. Uh, we've got to be guided by the Holy Spirit and not by a set of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws devised by men that are meant to circumscribe our every possible thought and action. And another point that he makes here, and I, it's so cogent, even though he wrote it in 1989, we're seeing this very thing today in, in large measure where the free reign of inferences, especially in humanistic law, which is mostly of what we find in, in our society today and in churches, too many churches as well, is the, um, the rise of tyranny and coercion for people who, uh, who don't follow the, and what has now become ensconced as uh, law, but which in fact are merely inferences. And this creates not uh, an opening of freedom, but a, a profound lack of it. And it's interesting that in societies that have claimed to be wanting to give people uh, fairness and, and freedom and openness, they're the ones that have tended to become the, the far more coercive and tyrannical. Right. And I think there have been observations recently where, you know, statism or the elevation of humanistic government can find itself in the civil realm and in the ecclesiastical realm that we're going to see mandates that say for a woman to be modest, you have to get out a tape measure and her skirt. First of all, she should always be in a skirt. She should never be in trousers, but the skirt needs to be so many inches off the floor. And now we're going to define this as modesty or the pendulum swings and says, it doesn't matter how an anybody dresses or how anybody carries himself, because you see, God loves us no matter what. So without the law, we don't have a standard for what's wrong, and we don't have a standard for what's right. And people want to throw out God's law as if somehow or other to even mention it 
means that you're being legalistic, which of course makes it sound like you're being like a Pharisee who really didn't get the spirit of the law. Well, that's a trick that you shouldn't fall into because that's just a way to end a conversation. I think people need to go back to what does the word of God say? And at the root of this problem is something we mentioned at the very beginning of what we can call Phariseeism. It's not so much the attitude that many people associate with that term. That's certainly a part of it, I suppose. But it's the particular thing that this group of men were doing that made it such that when God's divine son, the second person of the Trinity, became incarnate and walked among them, they hated him. And yet they claimed to be the most pious and holy men on the face of the earth at the time. How in the world could that happen? Right. You would think it'd be just the opposite. Well, it happened simply because they had over time accumulated hundreds of thousands of inferences uh, that they probably adopted, again, with the best of intentions, but they had produced something that they claimed was, in fact, uh, God's law, when in fact, it was just the opposite. It was their own. And so you have the building up of this tradition, which Jesus referred to, as I indicated a moment ago, as the, you've heard it said. This is exactly what he's referring to. He's referring to the inferences that these men over time had built up and were attempting to bind all these people that they themselves, as he indicated, couldn't even live by it. I remember uh, some years ago hearing a, a lecture by a minister that is known to you and I both, and he came from a Judaic background, and he was talking. Yeah, I think he had that the, when he's giving this presentation, a, a magazine or an article that was published for uh, modern Orthodox Jews, and this article was meant to help uh, people of that mindset keep the Sabbath. And it was amazing the the things that you could do or not do, and you could hire a, a, a non-Jew, a Gentile, to come in on the Sabbath and cut the lights on and off for you. And there's certain it, it was just unbelievable the, the meticulous, uh, completely circumscribed, can't make a, a a move in either direction kind of thing. That it's a miserable life to have to live that way. But that's not what God intended, and it's clearly not what's taught in the first five books of Holy Scripture. Right. So it's very easy with a Pharisaical mindset to believe that you will earn your salvation. If I yes. do this, I mean, I, I grew up Catholic and I, I tell this story a lot. There was, I don't even know where it appeared, but if you went to so many first Friday masses, somehow or other, you wouldn't go to purgatory. I, I don't know. I don't remember what it was, but I remember I would go with my grandmother <laughs> and I was like on number nine. And then I was sick with a fever and my mother wouldn't let me go. And I said, I have to go. I have to go. I have to do the, you know, whatever. And she's like, sorry, you're not going. You're sick. You know? And then I was like, oh, now I have to start all over again. So I was one of those kids who, and I'm sure there are people, not just kids, tell me the rules, let me follow them, and then I'll earn the prize. Right? But that isn't the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is the law is there to tell you what's right and what's wrong. And once you have the Holy Spirit, now you are naturally inclined toward that, but you always need to refer back to make sure that residual sin isn't getting you off the straight and narrow path. So you mentioned the Pharisees hating Jesus. So a man who's been paralyzed all his life walks 
but they get after him because he told the man to pick up his mat. Or a man with a withered hand is cured, but he did it on the Sabbath. So in other words, he should have waited till tomorrow to do it, as opposed to recognizing God was with them. But because they were so into their own inferences as a way in which that made them either commended to God or better than other people, they were blind to who was right in front of them. We have, of course, the same challenge today. And we can summarize, I think, that in the instances that you just referred to from the Gospels, uh, these Pharisees were probably enraged. They were angry at Jesus. Well, we know they were and stipulated in some cases. And I like what Dr. Rastuni said um, in, in one of the articles. He said, uh, people must be guided by the Holy Spirit, not by their anger against certain things. And he said, there are too many churchmen today more filled with rage than with the Spirit of God. And um, he said, a verse once commonly quoted seems now to be forgotten by man where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I recall, and maybe you would know the answer to this, but you were talking about your Catholic upbringing. I recall reading or hearing somewhere years ago, this is, of course, post-Vatican II, that one of the most uh, accepted and common practices, I don't remember if it was eating, abstaining from meat on Fridays or fasting before communion. I forgot exactly what it was. But I mean, every Catholic I ever knew, this is what they did, but it never was actually a, a law of the church. It was just a custom that had developed throughout the centuries, and no priest or bishop ever said, hey, you don't have to do that, <laughs> because people were, were doing it. No, I, you're absolutely right. You couldn't have meat on Friday because Jesus had died on a Friday, and so you couldn't have meat. And I hated fish, and I hate, I mean, I what else were you going to have besides fish? But I didn't like fish, so Fridays were always a dread. And there was a point where you had to abstain from food for three hours before taking communion or, and then one hour from drinking before you had communion. And right. it was not uncommon to watch in the summertime, watching people faint because they hadn't eaten. And so it's one of those things that if you can't go back and say, where does the Bible say this? Where does the Bible? Now, it doesn't mean that all traditions are bad. You know, when people make the sign of the cross, I believe that probably had different meanings over time. The Bible doesn't require that you do it. And so it's not that it's necessarily wrong if you do it, but to insist that others must do it is where we've jumped from the commandment to the inference. And this becomes a very uh, dangerous and highly problematic thing when it transfers over into the area of the humanistic state. I uh, recently read an article that was published in the official newsletter of Hillsdale College, uh, written by a man who is a professor there. And he made a very interesting point because uh, it, it, it coincides precisely with what uh, is in these, are in these two articles by Dr. Rastuni uh, about this matter. And he was making the distinction between tyranny and totalitarianism. And Rustini mentioned this, mentions these issues in this article about how this reliance on inferences finds its way into humanistic law and it results in a coercive uh, and less free society. But this article makes a very interesting distinction and says that, you know, tyranny was an older concept. And what we know today as totalitarianism was unknown in ancient times. And one of the reasons is, is the rise of science. 
And he made the point that science comes from a Latin term meaning to know something, but the difference between tyranny and totalitarianism is technology. Technology comes from a Greek word that means to make. And so we're in this transition uh, where we're, we're, men are no longer interested in really knowing the world as God had created it. Uh, they are interested in remaking it and changing everything uh, within their own power. And according to these inferences that they have made about what constitutes being a human being and what does or does not constitute liberty. Yes. And going back to Dr. Ostuni highlighting where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Mm -hmm. um, that means that we can minister and evangelize to the sinner, but we must tell them the truth. We live in an age now where people are more concerned with political correctness. In other words, you're not allowed to say that. And I think as soon as Christians abandon, thus saith the Lord, but then be willing to hang in there with someone because you really care about this person's salvation. If we repair to, well, I just want to get along and I don't want to get in trouble and we won't talk about religion and we don't talk about politics, then you've missed your opportunity to give a reason for the hope that's within you. If all you're willing to do is talk about God's word among those who say they agree with God's word, then you're certainly not acting as an ambassador. When you're an ambassador for Christ, you go to a foreign land. You don't normally have ambassadors in your own country. And so I think it's this view that says we really do have something to share. And oftentimes we're going to be sharing that with our enemies. And how do we love our enemies? By stating the truth teaching the truth and hoping they respond to the truth as opposed to, well, we should not offend people. And so we should keep our message inoffensive. We have to remember that the gospel is incredibly offensive. So if you're trying to be inoffensive, um, then you're preaching something other than the gospel. This becomes also an issue in the area, say, of uh, foreign missions or as you've indicated, our personal mission efforts in dealing with people around us, and that we have to be very cautious in um, understanding what the gospel message truly is. And it is a message of, yes, personal salvation, but it is also a message of becoming a citizen of God's kingdom. That requires us, after we are admitted into that kingdom by God's grace, to act like citizens of that kingdom act. But unfortunately, keeping with the theme that we've been talking about, what we have seen is the first thing uh, many people who, uh, with good intentions, want to do in terms of evangelism is, and I'll use something that I'm familiar with from my younger days, is, well, listen, if you want to be a Christian, the first thing you have to do is cut your hair, <laughs> um, or, or you have to not do this or not do that. And, you know, look, especially if you're going into a culture where there is uh, rank paganism all around, these things need to be addressed on some level. But if, if you don't start with the fundamental part, which is understanding that your relationship to God is the most important and your love for him will lead to then a desire to obey him and follow the pattern of life that he has set forth, all those things will sooner or later take care of themselves. I mean, not in a vacuum, and people do need to be given guidance about living uh, holy lives, but I dare say in the 1960s and 70s, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of 
younger people who were simply turned away from churches, either of their own initiative or at not, if not outright, simply because the fashion had changed a little bit and people were wearing their hair longer. I mean, it, it was a different time that could have symbolized something. There are similar issues today on, on, on different topics. I think for us, another area where we might find this being a problem is in the area of worship. You know, uh, that becomes something too, where um, especially in the Reformed churches, we have the, the topic of the regulative principle of worship, which has some very, very important things to teach us. But this too becomes something that, and to a greater or lesser extent, depending on what area we're talking about, is a subject of inference. And to completely disfellowship someone uh, because they don't do this in worship or they do do that in worship needs to be rethought in some cases. Right. And even when you need to make a correction, you make a correction in such a way that you don't try to communicate this is the most important thing. Um, a good example, there was a young woman who started frequenting our fellowship. And, you know, when she first showed up, her hair was dyed, her pants were kind of tight, and she had, you know, false eyelashes on. Well, you, we could have pointed out and said, you're just not dressed right. But, you know, the more the person hung out, then the clothing changed and the false eyelashes weren't there. And she showed up looking like herself. Well, how did that happen? Nobody criticized it, but she could see around her that wasn't the standard that meant that you were in or not. And over time, people shed those things that they have accumulated. They, the scales come off, so to speak, that they put on there so they could be accepted in a different area. And I think it's really important for families to understand this. I know that it's a temptation to make sure your children will never sin. I'm going to make it so they don't have opportunity to sin. Anytime they look in that direction, I'll let them know that it's sin. And so you, especially when they're younger, you think, well, I got this worked out. Our children will never sin. Well, I got news for anybody who hasn't lived through it. And I know you have, Charles. They'll find new ways to sin. You may say you can't do this, 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 and this. And then things you never conceived of are things that they'll go explore. So rather than trying to make it so that you're not allowed to sin, you point out how God views sin, what the consequences of sin are. You're going to be judged for it. You won't be blessed for sinning against God. And then trust God with our children. Trust God with the people under us so that we're training them, we're informing them, and we're having them understand the basis on which they'll be judged by God, but then let God be God and you just be the person that God has privileged to steward a life as opposed to create, dominate, and conclude what's going to happen to that person. In a similar way, Jesus faced the same challenge with his apostles and those who would come after them. Um, he ascends into heaven and he sends them out uh, to be his ambassadors throughout the world and to make the nations his disciples. But I'm sure he was under no illusions that they were never going to sin or do anything wrong. Uh, but what was, how did he handle that? You know, was there some coercive structure put in place that would slam down at the, the instant some disciple or early apostle did something untoward? No, 
there were many mistakes that were made, and that was uh, a part of the larger plan. This is the way the Lord works, and this, this is not a, a license to sin, but the law is the law of liberty, and this is how God designed it. And whether it's on a Christian fundamental level or any other area outside the church, especially in government, the idea that things become coercive, uh, that, that, that they become micromanaged, these are humanistic influences. This, this is not a part of what God has ordained for man. And I think it's a really useful thing for parents of adult children to listen to their children about, I didn't like this when I was growing up and you made me do this or that. The tendency is I did everything right. I was a parent and I was obeying God. Well, I can acknowledge that a lot of times I thought what I was doing was right in my understanding and inferences from God's law, only to discover I had other options than the only one I thought. And so, because God gives us the remedy when we recognize and acknowledge our sin, we confess it, and then we repent of it, and he's faithful and just and forgives us, that we can move on. But even more importantly, as a Titus II older woman or a Titus II older man, oftentimes the mentorship that we're able to give isn't, let me tell you where I did everything right. It's more often than not, yeah, like you, I thought this was the way to proceed, but there are other options that you should consider. Not that a good mentor decides to make everybody carbon copies of himself, but that you let people know that there are other things you've learned along the way, and you might do things differently. And, and I, we know from the accounts in the scripture, there were plenty of the Pharisees who did turn to Christ, right? So it's not like if you were a Pharisee, you were never going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. No, the same thing applied. If they confess their sin, God is faithful and just, will cleanse them of their sin and forgive them. And someone who is wise in the Lord's ways, who desires to be, and by God's grace, finds themselves in the position of being an example or a mentor for someone younger in years, they will have that ability to know when to say, okay, you might think about not doing that. On the other hand, you realize, and this is, I think, true in terms of our own children, there's some things you just can't tell people. They do have to learn on their own. And I don't mean, it may mean, okay, I've told you not to put your hand on the stove. You're just going to have to learn by burning yourself. Not necessarily something like that, but other life lessons that you can talk yourself blue in the face and it's not going to do that much good in the long run uh, because um, there is that element of freedom that God has given all of us. And we, we all have to walk that path of, of learning and hopefully become wiser. And it also, uh, that example that you gave, highlights the importance of being in a fellowship context where you do have that option and that blessed opportunity to benefit from the guidance and wisdom of people uh, who have the, the benefit of years of learning and walking with the Lord that you may not have. Even though you or I or someone else may consider ourselves up in age, there are people yet older and more experienced than us. That's God's plan. That's part of God's model. And I think that if, um, and, and winding this up, if from the church pastoral standpoint, if I could give any encouragement or guidance along these lines that we've been talking about how to avoid being a Pharisee, it's, it's that way to make sure that 
as an elder or a pastor or a fellow church member, uh, we are interacting with our fellow believers in a way that gives honor to the Lord specifically in what he has written in his law and in his word. And that requires us to know something about it and uh, to be cautious and not binding people's consciences on things that, okay, it may be okay for us in an instance that we mentioned earlier. Uh, but honestly, we cannot say that the Lord requires you or me or anyone else to go around requiring people to do exactly like we do in that particular case. Exactly. Which is why uh, Calcedon's emphasis has been learn the law and apply the law. And these position papers that Rush Juni wrote over the course of his ministry with Calcedon, and I've mentioned it's in the three-volume set, An Informed Faith. Uh, when I came up to these two articles, Inferences and Commandments, Inferences in Law, I had read them before. I had read them when they were written because it used to come every so often, this little mimeograph sheet. And so I, I had read it, but when I reread it, this many years later, I had more experience under my belt. I had a greater understanding of the law. And whereas when I first read it, it was like, oh, good, I'll never do that. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, I'll be careful. He said not to do it. I won't do it. I read it decades later, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I did that a lot. <laughs> so it, his position papers on all sorts of topics are very useful especially to the mature believer who has hung around a study of the scripture, considers himself or herself theonomic and reconstructionist. Dr. Shuni had a way of getting under your skin. And I used to joke with him when we would go up and attend the service where he was preaching. I almost never enjoyed his sermons. I would, you know how you go up to a pastor, you probably get this. Oh, pastor, I really enjoyed your sermon. I almost never enjoyed his sermons because <laughs> they shone a light on me that I had to confront, am I in keeping with this or not? Now, he didn't slap you in the face with it, but still, if you listen to what he said, he said, this is how you're to judge yourself. So, I highly recommend these articles to people and the way they were put together with the editor who did them they're kind of grouped in subject matter. So it's sort of like intensive training in a particular area. And the, uh, the concluding sentence of the second of the two articles, he makes a statement that I think it'd be good for us to remember as we kind of wind things down here is the Christian and the church must learn to believe, obey, and respect not only the inscripturated law word of God, but his silences also. Yes. Typical Rush Dooney, get you at the end and make sure you've got something to think about. All right. Well, thanks, Charles. I think that uh, this was an important one. So I hope it's been of benefit to our listeners. And as always, you can reach us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.